created live on Fireside. Welcome, everybody. Sorry for the late delay, but I'm Laura Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. Thank you again. Sorry for the delay, but I want to let you guys know that what's great about Fireside is that the audience has an opportunity to join in on the conversation by requesting to hop on stage, so please do. Uh, Today's guest is author Zelna Oberholster. Zelna is the author of Napierville, The Journey of a Spory from Sexual Abuse to Healing and Flourishing. She is also a life coach, speaker, mother, serial entrepreneur, and community builder and with a special interest in the development of young women. Using her journey as a multiple rape survivor, to thrive and inspire. Besides being an active speaker in different forms, she runs support groups for depressed, abused women and children and cancer groups. Zelna, thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside. Hi, Laurelie. Sorry about the um, long delay, but I am here now and, and I'm very happy to be part of your show. Well, thank you so much. I, I mean, you are you are here from South Africa and Napierville, yes. is that correct? Yes. Um, actually, I, I grew up in Napierville. I now live in Johannesburg, the capital. Well, we, we'd like to think it's the capital and Cape Town think they're the capital. So we're having <laughs> a fight about who's the capital. <laughs> but yes, the city of gold is where I live. Wonderful. Well, you know, your your memoir, um, The Journey of a Spory, um, mm-hmm. I didn't really know what the term spory is. So it kind of threw me when, it, but when I read your memoir, it, it, it means railway child. Can you tell me about the significance of that and a little bit about your journey? Yes. Yeah, so Napierville was a typical railway town where everybody's um, parents basically worked on the railways and we got cheap housing. It was very much like a, a state state kind of town because in those days there always were state owned and we you know um, there were certain social economic circumstances that we all had in common and mostly our parents were not very educated some of them didn't complete schooling some of them did and yeah basically the 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 railways we established to to help the what they used to call the Aram Blanca, which is the poor Africana, uh, white Africana uh, problem. After the English burned down all the farm, all the Afrikaans farmers' farms, so uh, the farmers didn't have any income, and they started their always uh, in South Africa to create jobs. And um, you know, the farmers in those days didn't have schooling, so. Um, to give them jobs that they could do with their hands and uh, and it continued like that. So usually in a town like Peter Maritzburg, there would only be um, 
few opportunities and one of them would be to work for the railways or to become a teacher maybe um, it was the legal capital at one stage so you were either a lawyer and very educated or you were on the other side of town which we were and Spuri is actually like a nickname we gave to ourselves um, because we lived on the Spur, which is the railway and yeah uh, it's a it's a term that some people use uh, in a de derogatory way, but for us it was a, a kind of an affectionate way to refer to ourselves as kind of being special. Interesting. Um, and so being a spory, was it somewhat considered difficult to kind of move up in, in class or move up in society, anything like that? Yeah, so um, I'm being crucified on the Facebook group, Napeville, because a lot of children did have great memories growing up. Unfortunately, a lot of people have texted me and uh, Facebooked me to say that they had similar experiences than me. So what would happen is your parents now maybe had a, I don't know what in your terms it would be, but with us, a, a great seven or a grade eight and it's kind of mid high school mid senior school mm -hmm. and and some of them only had junior school so what a lot of them who, who had the happier lives um what their parents did was they actually went to uh through the through the ranks in the railways where there were opportunities to go and study but those were very few and far between usually you would enter with a with a qualification if you if you were a professional kind of person very few people took the opportunity to better themselves mm. well you happen to yeah <laughs> and i think so that's the, wonderful the, yeah so a lot of us who grew up there i mean my one sister is an advocate today and we didn't have money to go to university uh, she got her degree in her late 30s. I got mine in my 30s, my first degree. So university degree. So that is, um, it's all up to the individual. And I think the role of the parents, at least if you had one strong parent, in my case, my mother was an extremely strong woman. And she always made us believe you can be anything that you wanted to be. So if you had that, if you had that support, um, then yes, there's, there's quite a few of us who's made um, great strides in life growing up in that area. Even some of the children in the children's home, um, which is like a, what would you say in English? Um, in Afrikaans, we call it a VSAs, where orphans would go, an orphanage, yes, mm. where they would go. And um, some of them has also made great successes and some of them became national sports stars and, and so on. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's always up to the, the choices that you make in life. It's not, you don't get defined by where you are. It's about the choices that you have and knowing about those choices. Yes. And you, and you've gone through so much trauma, so much trauma that, you know, many people would feel that would hold them back from any type of success. And, and so you, you broke that down. And I want to talk a little bit about what you have overcome. 
you know, when your title also includes sexual abuse to healing and flourishing. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and it's so sad. It's, it's wonderful to see now how well you're thriving, but you experience sexual abuse at the age of four. Yeah. So unfortunately, um, I do, I do see a lot because I belong to a lot of um, abused uh, groups and, and assisting on those groups, especially on social media. And I often see all the anger and the, um, the stuckness, like people can't get past it. And unfortunately, it's a journey that only they can decide, each person has to decide for themselves, how long do you want to remain stuck and how long do you want to be called the victim um, instead of taking charge of your life? And, and I know there's a lot of hurt. I know that there's a lot of pain. But in my case, um, I think what helps me is the fact that this has happened more than four decades ago. Mm. Uh, I was a child. I was four when I was almost four when my father died. And then the year after that, my mother, or actually later that year, my mother met someone. And she was very much in love with him. And, and he came over. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but he um, introduced me to a penis. Mm. <laughs> and um, it was orally and it was vaginally. And it was extremely sore. But for so long, I suppressed that. And it took me through many different therapies, holistic healers, and yeah, getting to a stage where I could remember the full incident, uh, I could always say that it did happen, but I couldn't say what exactly happened. Mm -hmm. So when um, when I got when I wrote my book, I realized that I really need to explore that so that I know exactly uh, that I am being truthful in what I am what I am writing about. And unfortunately, you know they they. They threaten you so much. And if you can imagine, if you have a child of maybe four years old or an, a niece, and at that stage, what her understanding of the world would be. And this was in the 1970s where television in South Africa was hardly, I mean, I think we only got a television in 1978 or something. But um, he bought my mother her first television, a small little black and white one. Um in reaction to me not saying anything and allowing him to do certain things, uh, my mother got meat for us. We were we were quite a few children, and she, you know she had to start working after my father passed. And this was this was great. It was like she got meat, so I could suffer the pain, and I wouldn't tell anybody because I was so scared that he would chop her up um, because that's what he said to me when we were at the butcher. Mm -hmm. He would chop her up and he would chop my sister up like that pig in the, um, in the butcher, in the butchery. So mm -hmm. I, um, I had the fear in me and I didn't say anything. There were days, believe me, there were many days that I wanted to, because it was, it was sore and, um, and I was very sick. My mom did take me to the doctor and she did take me to hospital because I was always complaining. But they could never really find out 
what was wrong and I wasn't going to say anything. I also didn't draw the relation between these things. Um, I would like go to hospital and my fever would be so high that they had to put me in ice baths uh, to break my fever and not knowing what caused it. So it could have been because of that, but but I've been diagnosed a few years ago with lupus and that could also result in almost all the symptoms that I had as an abuse survivor. I, you can almost relate all of those also to lupus. So it's very hard to say what was abuse-related and what was lupus-related. The reality of it is that the lupus, um, you know, the lupus gene is in a lot of people, but they don't get sick. But as soon as a huge trauma such as this happens, um, it could it could enable it or um, enact it. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, that's the part that was the hardest. The first one was definitely the hardest, and. The sad thing is that man is still, well, not now. I don't know if he's alive now, but I know that in around 2001, I heard him speak on the television news. Someone in his family had been murdered and he was the spokesperson for the family. And when I heard that voice, I mean, I was in my late 20s or early 30s, and I literally stopped what I was doing and I had to go to the television, but my knees felt paralyzed. Everything felt paralyzed. The fear that he still has after almost 30 years at that stage, um, by hearing his voice, uh, and I looked and it was him and the name on the television screen was his. Um, I just, I couldn't believe that he still has that effect on me, you know. Mm -hmm. You think I thought I was over this, thought it's a chapter that I've closed, but I, I guess you never really get completely over it, no matter how far you are along on your healing journey. Yeah, there's always triggers. There's yes. there's no matter how much you heal, there are some triggers that that do affect you hmm. years, decades later. And so I, I I understand and I think it's 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 an issue that we all have. And, and I think, you know, not only did this man as, uh, abuse you, but you were also abused by family and other mm. and friends. And yes. another thing that people don't talk about, you, you know, you are supposed to trust these people. These are people mm. you're supposed to turn to who everyone says, yes, you should trust your family. Yes, you should trust your friends. But for someone who's experienced such trauma, by the hands of these people, it's hard to trust people, anybody, and mm. especially I feel like yourself. I think it's hard to trust yourself, at least for me. I'm not sure mm. um, how that is for you. You know, I'm learning to to trust myself and and take care of myself and my own needs um, and, and trust some of the decisions and choices that I do make. But for a long time after, I know I had had issues doing that were there any trust issues that you you did have oh majorly I, I think um when I married my first husband before I got married to him um oh, I was extremely jealous and possessive mm -hmm. and uh I, I don't know I was a mean person because 
I had all this anger and I didn't know how to get rid of it. And he said, look, if we're going to be married, I need to trust him. And I told him what had happened. And he said he really thinks I should see or maybe we should see a psychologist so that he knows how to handle me because I couldn't have sex with him. It was just it was extremely sore. It was painful. So we actually started going because I had issues having sex. And it, it was the best thing I could have done because the gynecologist could fix quite a quite a lot of things that were wrong. Um in terms of, you know, later when I was a little bit older, um, 16 and, and older, uh, a bottle, a glass bottle was broken inside of me. And oh, it was never attended to by a, by a doctor at that stage. So the gynecologist was able to, um, what do you call it? I want you to say burn, but it's... Um, Solder. Scorching. Yes, yes. Yeah, like scorching some of it um, to heal. So some of the glass, I think I think it's quite cool, actually, that part of that is still inside of me, but I'm not letting it... I'm not giving it the time of day. <laughs> but the other thing um, with that is, um, you know, to, to help on the on the actual sexual healing part of it I had to get dilators I don't know if if that's still a, a term that they even use now but it's almost like mini penises made out of wax models and different sizes and I had to put them in for I mean some of them were as small as my pinky and I couldn't even get those into me because it was so painful and until I could sleep with one then I could go to the next side neck size mm. and so on um and that was just such a it was such a beautiful thing when I was able to have an actual orgasm and to have a man inside me who I know loves me and who respects me um that that was um I, I think the best thing that could have happened was that I couldn't have sex because that started me on an actual healing journey so mm -hmm. that I could start because the gynecologist obviously referred me to psychologist. Um, psychologist, he was like, you should have been a drug addict or a prostitute. Right. <laughs> and you not, yeah. why not? He couldn't understand <laughs> it. <laughs> but I, I must admit that before the incident that happened when I was 16, I was a very strong believer. I had a, a very strong faith and I think, that helped me through through a lot. And also a little voice inside of me that kept on saying that this is temporary. When you grow up, you can be anything you want to be. I yeah. Think. Yeah. You know, when you were introduced to me, um, uh, they referred to you as the woman with the screwed vagina. And I and I did <laughs> want to ask about that. And I'm assuming this is this is why. <laughs> so um obviously everybody is <laughs> screwed in some way or another <laughs> so the screwed is literally figuratively you know because it screws with your mind it's not mm -hmm. just trust and it's not just trust then it was trust throughout my life until and I heard you say earlier um that you still struggle with trusting yourself sometimes that's mm -hmm. probably one of my biggest trust issues um, and knowing where to set boundaries. And when I overstep the boundary, I usually know I have. <laughs> but up to that point, I don't know where the boundary really is. Um, 
and dealing with the issue of trust only started coming right when I found my authentic self, who I really was, not who other people always um, said I was or attributed characteristics to me because that's how they saw me, but because they always only saw the worst of me. They saw the the angry side or the sick side or the, you know, kind of not really this nice person. And I am a nice person and <laughs> I love being a nice person. And I, I had to explore that because nice people didn't really make it far in life as far as I could see because my mother was a you know, she was a beautiful person and a, a nice, really a nice, caring lady and it didn't get her anywhere. So I didn't want to be that for a very long time. And then when I found that, that this is my true authentic self, and every time I do something that opposes that, um, things don't work out for me. Whether it, whether it be in a job that I'm in, um, that I shouldn't, you know, like when the values of the corporation isn't the same as mine, or I can't live out my my kindness. If people expect you, if you want that promotion, you have to be cutthroat and you have to fire someone or whatever. If there's no reason to fire a person, why, why must I go and create one? It's not me. But the times that I, you know, felt pressurized to do things, that wasn't part of my authentic self. Um, it's it backfired on me always. So, and I even find today, like sometimes I get angry, and I'm not an angry person mm-hmm. in my in my being. I'm not an angry person, but when I get angry, people literally either they fear for their lives because they've never <laughs> seen me angry, or right. they start laughing because it's so funny. <laughs> um, but it never has a good result. The, mm-hmm. the feedback that I get from people afterwards is never good. And then I think, but it's because I wasn't my true, being my true self. And in a way that makes me feel that the abusers still hold, um, like, you like know, some weight. They, they still hold control over me. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the, the screwed vagina is then, it, my vagina is literally and figuratively screwed. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Mind is screwed. Your perception of self is screwed. Mm-hmm. Your perception of the world is screwed. Uh, I remember raising my daughter and being extremely overprotective. Yeah. Um, almost, she told me that I made her feel like a whore because I kept on telling you, you can't wear those shorts. You can't go out like that. You can't look like that. You can't go to church doing this or, or looking like that. Um, until one day, she just. She shout, we had a shouting match and she said to me, Mom, I know that what had happened to you was really bad, but it hasn't happened to me and I won't allow it to happen to me. So please let me just dress the way that I want to dress. And it was hard. It was really, really hard because I know she's got control over herself, but she hasn't got control over some dirty old man who looks at her and perves and have Uh, desires or instincts or impulses that he wants to follow. She hasn't got control over that. But I realized then that I was an extremely controlling person, 
and probably because of the abuse. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to control situations exactly so that I know what the outcome would be. And the outcome will never be that my daughter was going to be abused. Right. Uh, well, I think her being able to talk to you easily about things and if something were to happen where she felt uncomfortable, it seems like you are also open to that communication where she would feel safe to speak with you. Yes, absolutely. She's been in relationships in her adult life. Um, she's now 24. She's been in relationships that weren't that good, but those are her stories to tell. Um, and I was I was quite sickened by it because I thought, didn't she learn anything from not only my abuse as a child, but also, you know, the the aftermaths of abuse is usually that you choose relationships where you will be continued to be abused because you mm-hmm. think this is all I deserve. This is, you know, you're attracted to the bad boys. You let them hit you or you let them treat you like dirt. And she witnessed all of this. Uh, so I was so disappointed that she was in a similar t- two relationships of hers were quite similar to that. And then after the last one, you know, because I kept on apologizing for trying to commit suicide in my past and apologizing for not being the best mother that I could have been. And and she said to me, Mom, I don't know if you realize, but when I was in that relationship and I thought, well, I wish that the next time he does this, he'll just end my life. I Mm. thought, but... I'm stronger than this. My mother and my grandmother didn't have to go through all the shit they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I am and I have a choice and I'm strong. I am a strong woman. Why don't I act differently? And that is what pulled her through. So I, I think a question a lot of people usually ask me is, do I ever blame my mother about um, for the abusers? And I deal with a lot of mothers who are extremely guilt-ridden because their children or their uh, boys and girls have told them that they have been sexually abused. And they they feel guilty because they were not, not there. And to those women, I want to say that you cannot as a parent be everywhere. And it is not up to you and it is not up to your child it is up to the perpetrator it is his impulses and desires he's got the responsibility to keep it and i'm saying his but there's also women who abuse Mm -hmm. um I've, i've had some speakers on my podcast males who has been abused as children by women and you know men have got it really hard because they they say when they when they when they reveal this to to the uh, peers or to the family or whoever, then they say, "But you should have enjoyed it." Right. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's like the male macho thing. You can't have a beer with a guy and say, "Listen, I've been abused by women," um, because men will laugh at them. So I, I feel for men. I really do. But my heart is really with girls, and I want to empower them and. And teach them that when that uncle threatens you, um, it's just empty words. He won't mm-hmm. do it because that's not his his disease is in his head for little girls of your age. 
because when you reach a little bit, when you get a little bit older, that man doesn't want you anymore. He wants other girls at seven because he chose you at seven. The next man might choose you for nine years old. And usually by the time you start your period, then you've got a break a little while. But a lot of people, you know, especially living in South Africa, in our African, in our black African communities, there's a lot of this going on, a lot of um, incest, ancestral um, relationships. And the sad thing is when they, because of the culture, if they tell their parents, they, they are, and I'm not saying all of them, but there are some parents who, you know, will believe them one and take it further. But in the majority of cases, the parents just say, you know what, um, it's family. They, they're usually very well-respected community members. So don't say anything. It's part of life. Just continue. And then next year when there's a funeral or a wedding, and they, the, the African culture has to attend every single person in their whole bloodlines, funerals. They have to attend the weddings. So it's not, it's like there's almost never a free weekend on their calendars because they're always visiting or um, attending someone's birthday, funeral or wedding. And now they must face that perpetrator at every single event and they're not allowed to say anything. And the perpetrator can kiss them and hug them and be close to them can you imagine how traumatic that must be for them? Right. Absolutely. I think that I, I think any ancestral um, uh, molestation abuse is it, it makes it a little bit more difficult to get out of. And mm. and and although I never admitted to what had happened to me until twenty something years later, I feel like you know I do question whether my mother would have believed me um, yeah. or if she did, it would be, let's just, let's just keep this quiet. Um, but you actually, you actually had the courage to tell your mother about the abuse. How did you yes. muscle up that courage? Cause I think, I think a lot of people have a hard time um, talking about it. And, and I think that's, where the healing begins is actually telling somebody. Yes, I don't know if you can um, call it I had the courage to do so um, because I had a nervous breakdown after, the, after my 16th birthday and being raped by a young man. Uh, he was four years older than I was then. Um, raped by him on one of his army passes. I just... It was just too much. Everything was, life was too much. It was my first thoughts of suicide as well. And um, I just broke down. And my mother came to me. She held me because I was having literally a fit, a physical fit. And my mom just held me and just said to me, Zelna, what is wrong? Why are you acting this way? I've been seeing that you like, even my school marks had just gone down. And uh, um, I said to her, I can't tell her. And she said, please do. What happened? Who did what to you? And I then told her, but I did not tell her about the family member, even though the family member was on my uh, father's side. It wasn't on, on her side. And 
I didn't tell her because it was my my grandfather, and I was scared that in a way, um, they were kind of my only connection still to my dad, and maybe mm. I won't be allowed to see them anymore, although they were much older and so on. And I, um, she went ballistic. She, you know, when I when I realized that these men, these old men, because they were all old, greasy old men. Um, who did it up to up to I think they they raped me until I was about eleven, maybe twelve, and then I had this break, and then when I turned sixteen on my sixteenth birthday, I got raped, and um, by a man, uh, like I said, of my own age. So I um, uh, lost my train of thought now, <laughs> um, with regards to telling her. She wanted to go to the police station immediately and open a case. Um, but she first wanted to go to the house because the one guy stayed quite close to us. She wanted to go to his house and, and literally kill him. She wanted to kill him. That's and most I, mothers would. <laughs> I, was, I was so scared. What would happen if my mother killed this man, what, how would his wife feel? And how will I feel if my mother was in jail or at that stage was still a death sentence in South Africa? If my mother got killed because I waited so long to tell her and there's no evidence because I'm 16 years old, this happened with that specific man. I was um, between seven and nine. He, he molested and raped me for two years. Um and yeah, so so now to tell her how, and and we didn't even know what molestations and rapes were in those in those days. I just told her that they did this to me, and I feel dirty, and I don't want the boys at school to look at me. I I just wanted to wear big the biggest possible t-shirts, um, jerseys, and uniforms, long uniforms, big over my breast because I'm a big breasted girl. And, um, yeah, I just and, – and her reaction kind of told me, one, I did the right thing um, by telling her now and not earlier because if I told her earlier and I was younger, I wouldn't have had the verbal the, – the right um, verbal capacity to, to tell her, the right language mm-hmm. to convey to her what had happened. And I wouldn't have had the sensitivity not to um, give her the gory details. I would have probably told her everything. And I don't think any mother should have to handle that. Not that I'm saying a child should. But I I think being such a long time in between, I don't think it would have been fair for my mother to hear everything. I mean, she's passed on. So I had the liberty to publish my book with all the details, um, mm-hmm. most of the details in it. And I, I did write it with a specific aim um, of giving the details because I'm so sick of hearing men and women saying, you should just get over it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hello, have you been there? Have you been present? Have you seen... And felt what I did when I went through that. You can't just get over it. It's taken me almost 40 years to get to where I am. Um, and I I think I'm over it. But you, you never 
completely over it. There's always a trigger somewhere waiting mm-hmm. for you. And and then it's it's like the trauma is happening to you all over again. Right. So it's not about feeling sorry for yourself or anything. It's about having to deal with a lot of shit. It's not it's not somebody just looked at you and or maybe squeezed your bum or something. This is rape is violent and rape rape is um it violates who you are. It almost murders the child if it happened at a young age. Right. It murders the child that you were. So I never had a childhood, so now I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I'm loving playing a lot. <laughs> you you decided not to press charges, though. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Simply because, so my mother asked me, so um, what what are we going to do about this? And uh, I said, I don't know. But if we open a police case, the one uncle is dead. Um, is it fair to his wife to know? Because the specific uncle did it to uh, to his own grandchildren. We had to make turns. Um, he had a twin and a, a girl that was my age. Um, or maybe a little bit younger. But, yeah, so... And he was accused of a whole lot of other things, but he had a very senior position within the rollways. Would it serve any purpose to tell her now and hurt her? Um, for what reason? And nothing can be done about it in any way. And mm-hmm. I remembered that when when uh, when he raped me um, and his grandchildren, I was about nine, and the one day somebody came home. Um, in South Africa, we, we have a lot of domestic workers working for us, and they haven't had a, they've never had a really great um, history with Afrikaans people, not just Afrikaans people, it's a lot of people. But um, if, a, if a black African domestic lady in the 90s, well, this was 1980s, if she had to come forward and say a white man raped me, chances were that everybody would tell her she's she's lying Mm -hmm. and it happened that this man was accused the school said um that he had raped her and i know that he did because i saw him taking her to the same caravan that he often took us to and uh, i heard her screaming and i heard all the grown-ups talking about it about they wonder um they wonder how much of this is true my, my mother would say she wonders how much of this is true and all the other people said it can never be true mm-hmm. why would he rape her he's a police captain why would he rape her so that stuck with me so I thought then what are they going to say about me like little snip um why would they believe me and yeah and I spoke to my mom about the uncle who stayed close to us and I ask her, please, I don't know if you've read my book, you'll see he mm-hmm. did he, him and my stepfather together, although my stepfather never physically raped me. Um, I have a strong suspicion he, he was very much aware of what was happening, and I think he received money for it. Um, but mm-hmm. on one occasion, this man had terrible things done to me. Um and I was always forced to go and visit them. You know, the child must be heard but not seen. 
or must be seen and not heard or I can't remember yeah. what it is. But I always had to go with. I couldn't stay at home because I was too young. My sister could always stay home, but I, I had to go with. And um, I just asked her, please let me just never, ever, ever, ever see him again. And I went to school the one day and I came back and I saw his car standing outside of our house. And he came out storming. Uh, he didn't greet me. He got into his car and he, he had an old blue Granada car. Um, and my mother was crying and she was furious. And she said, you will never have to see him again. And they left mm -hmm. Peter Marisburg. So I was happy with that. I'm not, I, I wish that I had the courage to speak up. Um, then because when I did come out of my story and these other girls and boys from my neighborhood started messaging me, I could have probably have saved at least four of them from it mm. if I had said anything at that stage. Um, but I didn't. So they had to also go through this and that's unnecessary. But the, the courts and, and the law is just not always on the victim's side. It's, mm -hmm. it's a sad reality, but yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that is really hard. It, there are, in, in many cases, and especially in the 80s or even the 90s, it was, mm. it, you know, it wasn't, it was more of. Uh, Kind of, it, it wasn't on the victim side, like you said. Um, it's still not. Yeah. It's still not. And our courts, um, I happen to have just uh, recently have translated the book of um, Ina Bonnet. Uh, she's, she'll be a great guest for your podcast, by the way. She survived a brutal attack in Modimole by the Modimole monster. He was dubbed by the media as the Modimole monster. The child was killed the same day and um, in the same attack and she survived having her nipples literally cut off of her body and her genitals and oh she she just had when as I was like translating the book I, I, it just made me realize if you have the right help from the moment that you make your statement to the police and you have a group of women she, she had a group of women advocates and um people at a women's center who prepared her for the court case, who knew that they would, how they would swing questions and to know that to prevent those questions, to have it already in your police statement, the wording, the wording is so important. And I just wish we can have like these women's centers all over the world that can prepare almost from a public relations perspective, like, train them like media train them court train them <laughs> so mm -hmm. that the answers are consistently the same exactly the same as it was in the police station so that nobody can doubt it anyway right because we have to catch these buggers but we can't if if the courts keep on making it the victim's history you know and i mean if you have been an abused person it's probably it's very probable and most likely that you've got an interesting sexual past <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's people do do act out in different ways and some of them are promiscuity so it's possible that you right. might have been promiscuous but it doesn't mean that that rape when you said no um and he continued with it that that isn't um a rape it is a rape he's guilty mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. How did how I want to know how did you find your way out of this dark place finally? Well, um, lots of suicide attempts uh, mm. failed, and I felt I'm not even good enough for that. I couldn't find like you know I've never really belonged anywhere. Like, and, and I think maybe that's why one of the reasons as a child also, because I was always one side. Um, I, I don't have great social skills. I think I'm a little bit on the autism spectrum in, in many ways. And I, um, yeah, so it was with the last, no, not quite the last, uh, let's say second last um, suicide attempt that I had a friend telling me, you have to choose. I'm giving you this choice. You, you can choose. I will support you 100%, but you have to make a choice today. You're either all in or all out. You can't continue like this. You've got a daughter. And it was like a light switched on for me because, yeah, on this bed next to me, I, I was, um, I hope it's not too graphic, but I tried to hang myself and he, he got me off, um, mm. off of the rope onto the bed and spoke to me. And my daughter was there because, mm -hmm. because I tried to arrange for her father to come and fetch her so that she didn't have to be there, but he couldn't that day. So she was there and I, um, she, she sat next to me and, comforting me and she's like I don't know four or five years old and yeah she is um comforting me and I'm supposed to be the mother I'm supposed to be the parent and I just I looked at her and I decided I have to be the mother that she deserves I can't continue on this this is a self-destruct mode mm -hmm. and I looked at my life and I looked at what can I do to make my life better because financially and everything I was quite ruined after a very abusive relationship and I started studying got my first degree got a great job um, first the first two jobs weren't that great but I knew that they were just stepping stones to where I wanted to be I didn't quite know where I wanted to be then but then things started falling in place like the more I started getting in touch with who I was, like going to the movies alone, deciding I actually like romantic comedies and <laughs> I like real-life dramas and I love art movies. Um, I don't have to go and look at um, what murder and crime and action movies. We call it in South Africa, we call it scoop, skit and donor movies. <laughs> it means kick, um, kick, shoot and... Um, fuck up <laughs> movies <laughs> so we yeah I don't have to watch that because I don't like them but if I feel like watching one then I will and I realized what kind of eggs I like I didn't like eggs benedict I really loved omelette and I loved scrambled eggs <laughs> um little bits of me and I started liking parts of me there were actually a few parts that I started seeing um I really love and and one of them was doing charity work. Um, I worked at a local hospice over on Saturdays, over weekends, and meeting the people there, knowing you're making a difference, that people can have medication, 
um, was just, it was so awesome. And I realized this is, this is more of who I am. I want to be more of that because that is what I love about me. Um, and I started doing the things that felt right and doing less of the things that didn't feel right. I started getting rid of the friends. Um, you know, I'm, um, I've got a good network of people because of the work that I've done before. I see you also have a media background. So I also had a media background. And um, people were always just wanted to be friends with me so that I could introduce them to somebody at some function mm, always yeah. um, or party friends people that just always wanted to because I really love dancing um, they always wanted to go out with me because the rich guys the guys with the the golden watches the Rolex watches and stuff would hang out at that party so they wanted to go out with me I started getting rid of all of that because that was just so superficial and honestly there's only so much I can talk about mascara and lipstick <laughs> And having your nails done. So, um, yes, I started attracting people who were more like-minded. And and one of them was my new husband. And he is like, he's like medicine to my soul. He's the best thing that could have happened to me besides my daughter. And, you know, if you, if I wasn't ready to receive him, he there was no way. I, I mean, I would have not have wanted him in my life I, although I didn't want him at the time that he did come but he was persistent he told me he knows I'm the right one for him and he'll wait um, and that's the thing people who are right for you will probably wait for you mm -hmm. um, but it's important that you don't do yourself in because you've got all these hang-ups you can sort out the hang-ups in the process of sorting out the hang-ups because I believe if you've had a trail of bad relationships, you should start looking at what is the part that you played in it. And even if that part is the part of you that is the victim, um, deal with that victim shit and carry on. You're actually <laughs> a survivor and a, a thriver. Don't get stuck there. It's a horrible place to be. I know I've been there where Everything was like Yammer, what Marty Yammer had, what Sad Susan, I don't know what you would call it. Somebody who's <laughs> always like looking for, you know, you know those people like the, are always negative. And Debbie Downer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so don't be that person. Um, I know that it's easy, it's very easy to remain there, but you've got a beautiful life ahead of you. Why would you waste it on, on just all those negative thoughts and um, feeling sorry for yourself go and do do the things you dreamed about don't let them take that away from you go and show them you can do it and and probably do even better things mm. and recognize that you have been screwed in many ways but you know see the humor as well the humor i think brings um many times even today i mean this specific week We've, you know, we've had after Christmas, our wall fell in <laughs> and mm. the insurance took a month and a half. They actually fixed it last week, but they never fixed the um, electric fence. And then we had a burglary and they came into our house, like within 30 meters of us. And the same night, uh, my husband's uncle died. And I was like, just can you just stop now? It's just <laughs> enough. But right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you don't, um, you know, we, we see some humor in it, even with the break and we, we, we like see things like 
they took out the louvers and then they put the <laughs> the soap very neatly on the roof like they scared it would break <laughs> they probably saved my good porcelain for me so that's fantastic <laughs> but yeah but I do know it is you know I'm not trying to make light of the fact that people have gone through worse trauma than I have much worse I've heard much much worse stories but it doesn't mean that your trauma isn't valid right. no matter how small you think it is what you've gone through is not how it should have happened so find ways to deal with that and accept that it did happen and accept that you are a victim but don't get stuck there because the hopelessness the guilt the shame the feelings of not being good enough feeling rejected you know how long can you be there because you're never going to be happy there Rather, find ways, find people in your life. Um, There's tons of free resources. People can go onto my website. I've got free um, guides as well. Sorry. (coughs) Excuse me. I've got some free guides. And if you just need somebody to talk to, to help you out of a situation where you are now, Unfortunately, I can't help with money. A lot of people ask me for money. Uh, I do have a charity with who, which I'm trying to help South African people um, to be employed. Um, but I cannot help with money. Maybe, maybe just the voucher to get you from point A to point B if you're stuck somewhere. But if you're not in South Africa, it's really hard for me. I do try to make use of my network. But I am not God. I can't be everywhere. Mm-hmm. I wish that I could because uh, there's desperate calls for help sometimes. But there are societies. I know in South Africa we have the Tears Foundation. We have um, Shout. And we have um, oh, now the most important one. I can't remember. Um, and anyway. you, have these, you have these on your website, correct? Yeah, some of them are on my website. And if they're not, there is a list of them in the back of my book as well. But and can you share that? Yes. Can you share your website? Yes. So remember that my book is based in South Africa. So mm-hmm. those will be South African ones. But there are groups, Facebook groups, that if you connect on there, um, a lot of survivor groups, and just you ask on there, people will immediately tell you, or they'll send you a list of available places in that area, which is amazing. I I make use of that quite a lot. Well, thank you so much for everything. I really appreciate you joining me today on Fireside. Great. Thanks, Laurelie. I really appreciate it. And I I wish you much luck with your own journey. I know it's not easy, but if you ever need to talk, you know where to find me. Oh, I appreciate that so much, Zelna. Thank you. Thank you again. (laughs) That was Zelna Oberholster. Bye-bye. That was Zelna Oberholster, life coach and author of Nibirville, The Journey of a Spory from Sexual Abuse to Healing and Flourishing. For more on Zelna, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. She will be appearing in March's issue of Authentic Insider. So be on the lookout for that. You can check out the, um, you could subscribe to my website where you can get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. 
I'll be back March 3rd when we speak with Teresa Bruni. She is an energy healer and she will talk about healing the mind and body and soul. So don't miss that show live on Fireside Thursday, March 3rd at the same time, 1230 p.m. Eastern. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast on Fireside. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care.